a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. It's about this time last year, I was having a conversation with Lisa Ray Beal about a new biblical commentary she'd just published on First and Second Chronicles. Now, Lisa is both a priest of the Anglican Church of Canada and an Old Testament professor at Providence Theological Seminary. I was thinking she might be a really good speaker for our Idea Exchange series. Now, as you might know, the books of First and Second Chronicles offer a somewhat condensed and alternate version of the longer history of Israel told in the books of Samuel and Kings books from which we'll be reading over the course of the next few months. I said to her something to the effect of, Lisa, maybe you could make a case for why people in the church should pay attention to First and Second Chronicles. With a wry little smile, she said, because they're in the Bible. And then she paused and she added, and because we're longing for a true king. Over these summer months, I'm going to focus much of my preaching on the stories of Israel and its dreams of kingship. Tonight, we begin by hearing the cry of the people to Samuel. We are determined to have a king over us so that we may also be like other nations. By the end of August, we'll have worked our way through to the death of David, Israel's greatest yet most complex king. You might wonder why so much focus on stories set 3,000 years ago in a world so very different from our own. Well, because they're in the Bible. But more... As we meet these characters and catch a sense of their strivings and their dreams, their vulnerabilities and their foibles, you begin to realize that for all that their world was so very different from ours, they can still tell us a good deal about us. And we're still longing for a true king. Then all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, And said to him, you are old. It's a great opening line, isn't it? You are old. And your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us a king to govern us like other nations. For some 200 years before this, Israel had functioned with what the Jewish scholar Martin Buber called a subversive alternative to human kingship. For 200 years, they lived as a tribal league, anchored in their identity as the covenant people of God. They had no monarch, no king or queen. Instead, Israel had these figures called the judges, leaders whose authority was recognized as being of God, but who did not sit on a throne in a royal city. They maintain no standing army. In a real sense, the judges led from within the tribal league. 
And in times of crisis, they could muster a militia to defend against any military or political threat. And then when the crisis was over, go back to normal. And yet now, the elders, notice, it's the elders, not the young upstarts with their new ideas. The elders come. And they've called for a new political system. Samuel, who was recognized as both a prophet but also a judge, had grown old, too old for the job. And his sons had turned aside after gain, taking bribes and perverting justice, as the text says a little earlier. They discredited themselves from following in their father's stead. Appoint for us a king to govern like other nations. That's a warning statement in the text, if there ever was one. For up to this point, Israel's identity had been as unlike other nations. But the memory of what life under the Egyptian pharaoh had been had faded. The other nations, notably the Philistines, they're kind of like the archetypal enemy. The Philistines and others seemed increasingly threatening. Life under the judges had not always been all that idyllic. And the sons of Samuel were clearly a problem. To borrow a line from Bob Dylan, the times they are a-changing. And the elders had decided they needed a more adequate political system, something more credible, stronger, dependable. Samuel, though, is quite unconvinced. He prays, and he receives what must have struck him as the most troubling of answers. He hears God say, Listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Listen to them as they make the most dangerous political move in the whole of their story. Listen to them. Yes, but also warn them. Show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Warn them. And Samuel does. Walter Brueggemann calls what follows in the text the harshest, most extensive criticism of monarchy in the Old Testament, one of the most important pieces in the Old Testament on the abuse of public power. So you want a king, do you? Careful what you ask for, Samuel says. Careful what you ask for, because you might just get it. Do you know what what you get when you have a king? Do you know what you're asking for? You're going to get a standing army. That's what you'll get. And your sons will be conscripted to serve in that army or to labor at producing the weapons of war or to plow the king's ground, to reap the king's harvest. Your daughters? The king will take them to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. You'll lose your best fields, your vineyards, your best produce, livestock, and your good servants. You'll lose them to the king. In fact, you'll be little more than slaves to a king, because that is what kings do. But you've asked, and the Lord has heard your request. And if you're serious about this, O Israel, a king will be given you. Just know this, you will get what you asked for. 
But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, No, but we are determined to have a king over us so that we may be like other nations. There's that fatal phrase again. Like other nations. That our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. Good luck. You'll fight the king's battles, frankly. And so the story unfolds. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice. Set a king over them. That alone in this story should alert us to the sometimes staggering cost of human freedom. They chose. God will take that choice seriously. This is what they've chosen for themselves, and so at this moment their story will take an abrupt turn. It will take a few chapters in the story before Saul is anointed their first king, and then just a few more chapters before the cracks begin to show in his reign. All the way through these books of Samuel and Kings, even when it is the great hero David who's under consideration, All the way through, Samuel's powerful words of critique, of kingship, echo in the background. Careful what you ask for. Yet, I believe that Lisa Ray Beale was quite right. We still are longing for a true king. Yes, Canada, we're a democratic nation, shaped as a constitutional monarchy, so we've got an image of a queen on our coins, but we elect our own leaders. For better or for worse, we get what we voted for and things go lumbering on. For many of us, it's a pretty good and comfortable deal, one we would not want to trade away. For others, not so much. The child poverty rates in this country are disturbing. For many people in this nation, adequate housing and even basic education are sorely wanting. And our ongoing dependence on fossil fuels is threatening to cripple our very ecosystem. The scandal of the misuse of expense accounts in the Canadian Senate continues to grow as the weeks unfold, which may not be quite the same thing as the king taking our sons into the army and our daughters as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. But the Senate scandal does stand as a rather powerful reminder of how people in positions of power and privilege can so easily justify all manner of things. And then this past week, the news media has offered countless stories on the report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. What's the phrase that keeps coming up again and again in the sound bites from Judge Murray Sinclair. Cultural genocide. How could our forebears, worse, how could my church have possibly justified policies in their time that are now recognized as killing of a culture in our time? And then from beyond our borders come all those unspeakable stories from Syria and Iraq, from South Sudan and Nigeria, from Ferguson, Missouri. As a people whose hearts and imaginations have been caught by Jesus, 
We long for a different kind of world, a world marked by peaceableness, deep reconciliation, mercy and loving kindness, a truthful and equitable reign in which all are freed to flourish and none goes without. We long for the one whose justice breaks down dividing walls, the one in whom the powerful are brought down from their thrones and the lowly lifted up, as Mary's song in Luke 2 would have it. We long for the one in whom the wilderness and dry land shall be glad, as Isaiah sings. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly. The desert shall rejoice with joy and singing. The desert, the wilderness, the most desolate of places, filled with life and song, We long for the one in whom the wounded earth itself can be restored. Maybe, just maybe, the single most important reason for reading these ancient stories over this summer season, these stories of the politics of kingship and nation, is to remind ourselves that of our own, we will not be able to restore the brokenness of the world, that human kings can't do that. Not that we should stop living now in full knowledge that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It is in our midst. Not that we should shy away from trying to be the subversive alternative to all things that break our hearts and make us weep, that break the heart of God and make God weep. But in the end, we're reminded in these odd political stories that this is not our world to save. It is God's world. And so it is that we long for a true king. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.